Hey. Um, I got a, uh, I got one of these today from someone. And I feel, yeah, I, here's what I feel. I feel like I didn't like dip my toe into the fanny pack world, you know, or the, what do you guys call it? A side bag. What's this thing called? Cross. My gosh. Anyway, I feel like my, it was like a kick into the deep end. Like this is like a shimmering red, beautiful. Uh, I'm going to take it off because, you know, I don't, I don't want to distract you. It's just so beautiful. But um, I am trying to learn how to be cool. And so if you guys have any suggestions, uh, I've got time and I've got nothing else to do. So uh, we are going to talk about the truth of scripture tonight. And again, the commitment that I'm going to make to you is not sugarcoat anything. And I'm going to start with this. When I was your age, I found the Bible phenomenally disinteresting, which a lot of you do too. And, and I think the reason, we talked about it this morning, what would Satan have more than if there was a book that was written and in its pages contained these very ideas, in its pages of, of the book, in the pages of this text, which has started and ended wars, it was used to free slaves from captivity. It, it, it was the beginning of the pronunciation of the end of the, of the brokenness of, of antebellum slavery. It was, it's been used, it's been taken, it's been, it, 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 Hitler used the Bible to try to convince people that he was right, even though he wasn't a Christian himself, he understood the power of the book. When you claim to say the words that God says, people tend to listen. But in our culture, we don't really. We read it in a way that Satan loves. We approach the Bible in a way that is so incredibly not interesting. Here's what we do, right? Uh, I'm reading Harry Potter to my kids right now. We're on book three. So we're in like Prisoner of Azkaban and stuff like that. And um, you might be like, don't you, it's witchcraft. It's like, it's fine. Um, we just, we do witchcraft only on the weekends in my house. Uh, <laughs> and anyway, we don't, we just think about it. If anyone was like, oh no, I'm, I love Harry Potter, right? I'm all about it. It's phenomenal. And I was like, oh, cool, really? You really do? And you're like, yeah, this is how I read it. Professor McGonagall turned into a cat. All right, guys, it's time for Bible study. What do you think that passage means? Mm, that's good. What do you think that passage means? What do you think that passage means? What do you think that passage means? Right? And the church kid's like, well, technically the word Professor McGonagall in the original language, it's like, bro, shut up. No one, like, nerd, no one cares what you think, you know? But this is how we pick up the scriptures. We pick up the Bible and we ask the most boring, ridiculously mundane questions like this. <laughs> Wake up in the morning, cup of coffee, 535, time to read the Bible. First of all, what? Like, <laughs> Go to bed, Frederick. Anyway, it's 530, it's time. And then we do this, right? God, teach me how to be a better person today. And all of the Israelites were circumcised. That's good. That's good. That's good. <laughs> you don't know what circumcision is? Ask your pastor, but. And we approach the text like this. And we do it in such a way that a lot of us, like, it's, it, I, when I talk to students, I always ask them, like, some of the more basic questions, like, are you a Christian? Which, by the way, the heck does that mean anymore? You know what I mean? Like, Christian can mean anything. The Bible doesn't define what a Christian is. In fact, in the Bible, in, in biblical times, Christian was a derogatory term for someone who followed Christ. Followed Christ. They call them little Christ followers or Christians. Now, 
because it's so undefined, you can call yourself a Christian and do whatever you want. You can believe in Buddha and Gandhi and Will, like Will Smith and like <laughs> Oprah, and you're like, but I'm a Christian. It's like, what the heck does that mean? It doesn't mean anything, right? You can get up on stage in an award show and be like, first of all, I want to thank my mom. I want to thank my wife and my girlfriend and God. And you're like, what? <laughs> right? Christians are, it's like the one label that we let everyone get away with. We, we don't even question it. Like if you met a friend and they were like, I'm a vegan and I, but I just love eating meat. We would go, well, then you're not, no, that's not how that works. Like that's not a thing, friend. I'm a bachelor. I'm one of those married bachelors. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> no, we don't. Cause that's the dumbest crap I've ever heard in my life. But when it comes to Christianity, we're like, I'm a Christian. What does that mean? The heck does that mean? You go to church. You don't swear as much as the person next to you. You like only go to second base with your girlfriend. Like what, 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 what's a Christian? Like don't, don't laugh. You know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of us, the very definition of that we follow God, it has much more to do with what we don't do than what we believe. What makes you a Christian? It's the things that I don't do. Like I, I'm, just trying to I'm just trying to tell you, God didn't come and become man and die on a cross so that you would say less bad words. Like that's not transformation of the soul. That's not what makes a Christian a Christian. But because it's a religious idea and because it's personal for you, we simply say, well, if you think you're a Christian, then you're a Christian. If you claim to be a Christian, then you can be a Christian. And really the, the, the core of what, it, what, it, what a Christ follower is, the core of what a disciple is, the core of what someone who is saved believes comes down to this. I, like, I, I've gotten to work with young adults for like the past 11 years at my church. And I love, it's typically girls who come up to me and they're like, can I meet with you? And I'm like, yeah. Are you crying? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> but soon. Um, and they'll sit down in my office and they're like, I met this guy. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, um, he's a really, <laughs> he's a really good guy. If anyone, let me give you some wise advice. Anything before the word but doesn't matter, okay? I, I met this guy, and he's a really good guy. But. How do you know? Because you've all justified this in your own brains before. He's a really good guy, but he's cheated on me like three or four times. And listen, listen, that's the kind of judgment I knew. I knew it. I knew it. I get this all the time. He's a really good, and then they go, well, um, I know he's a, he's a good guy deep down. It's like, Jennifer, who cares what he's like deep down? No one, like, if you marry him, you don't marry deep down Ben. You marry the Ben that he constantly, the choices he constantly, what, what are you letting him get away with that for? And we do it with Christians, right? As long as you label yourself something, we're going to let you go. You can do whatever you want, and we're not going to say anything. That's not what makes a Christian a Christian. That's, we, we let people get away with this idea of self-identifying and thinking that that makes any difference. It doesn't. It's a foreign concept to all of Scripture that the individual would be allowed to dictate what they are and what they believe. It says again and again, can a, in the New Testament, we talked about this morning, can a fig tree bear olives? No, that's, the answer to the question is no. 
In the same way, someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus, we all have a uniform, monolithic understanding of this book. We have one understanding of it. It's called sola scriptura, which means we believe that this book is inerrant and infallible. It is true. It's the final word on God's authority on all matters of faith and morality. This is king, which means if you read a part of the book and you don't agree with it, you're wrong. Book is right, right? If you read something about being unequally yoked with the person that you're dating and you think the Bible is giving good advice, you don't understand the Bible. God isn't some cosmic consultant going, let me put my two cents in. I came and died on a cross because I want to be one voice in your life and take it or leave it. Like Jesus is never like a, well, I don't know. We just, here's my, I'm like an old man. I'm just going to give you my opinion. Like Tuesdays with Maury, some old dude, like Morgan Freeman character. Let me just, may I? I may not. Okay, fine. I'll just sit back here. That's not the Bible. The Bible is God's divine word for us. And you either look at the entire text and say, this is how I live my life and where we disagree, this is right and I am wrong. This is the king of my life and this is the judge and this is how I'm gonna understand myself. Or you don't, there's no third direction. But we approach the Bible in such a phenomenally disinteresting way. I just can't wait to find out what I'm gonna learn about myself. That the book wasn't written for that purpose. It wasn't written as a self-help guide. It wasn't written for you to take out in the morning so you can feel better about yourself. John 17, these things are written that you may know God, that you would sit face-to-face -face with the king of the universe and being in his presence, you would find out quickly and severely where you lack, how deeply you are loved, how incredibly far from God's standard you have fallen, but how intimately you are known and how completely you've been justified period. And it doesn't give us permission to weasel our way anything else. That is what this book is about. But when we approach it like we would any other book, or when we approach it, guys, listen, we murder this book in Bible studies. We sit in circles and we go, is everyone comfortable? Perfect. That's how we should read the Bible when we're all in perfect comfort. Did everyone get enough tortillas? Yeah, we did. Can you pass the chips over here? Good. I'm going to snack so I can kind of pay attention to what's going on. All right, here's our passage for the day. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not by works that no man can boast. What do you think that means? And someone raises their hand. Yeah, Sarah. I think, and I could totally, totally, totally be wrong, but I think I'm not wrong. Um, I think it means, I think the word grace uh, really speaks to like God's um, it's like how much God loves us and like how much he cares for us and how much he wants us. And if we're saved by how much he wants us, then I think even the wrong things that we do, God is a loving, like if I was a dad and my kids did something wrong, I wouldn't even care that they did something wrong because I would just love them so much in spite of those things. I think that's what God's grace means. And we go, Sarah, thank you for sharing. <laughs> Next, Steve, what do you think? It's all freaking go back to Sarah. No, Sarah, that's not what the text means. That's wrong, okay? The point of reading the Bible isn't to ask ourselves, what do you think that God meant? What do you think? The, the way we read the Bible is this. What do you think the original authors intended for you to understand about God? What do you think the original authors intended for you to understand about God? See, when we run it through our filters of what my heart, here's what Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says about your heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and incapable of being tamed. It says that the way that we naturally do life, 
that imagine your life. Imagine if you were like a life coach and you have to think back to all the decisions you've made in your life. And now imagine, imagine yourself interviewed for a job to run the next 10 years of your life. Would you hire you? I wouldn't. I'm a dumpster fire. My life is a dumpster fire. I would never hire myself. Do you want to know why? I'm not a good life coach. My heart is deceitful and desperately wicked beyond repair. And so many of us, when I talk to you, you're like, I am a Christian, but I really need to do better. And I'm like, what does that mean? I need to read my Bible more. Why? Why do you need to read your Bible more? Because I haven't been reading it much lately. That really wasn't the answer to my question. Why is it important for you to read the Bible? Why do you care? Why does any of us care? Is it just some old set of antiquated documents that people used to read before they had modern thought and progressive understanding of the world? Who cares? Why do we care? And we approach it with this same thought over and over again, and we're, we shouldn't be curious on why we're not interested in reading it. We read it alongside the other books that we would read that are self-help or here's a way to be a little bit better today. That's not the way the text has ever invited us to read it. It is a number of things. It is, first of all, the scheme of Satan against your life. In 1917, a code breaker broke this code. It's called the Zimmerman Telegram. And Germany sent a telegram encoded to Mexico saying, if Mexico is willing to attack the United States, then they would give back portions of the United States after they won. They would take back the United States and they would give Mexico back portions of the United States. The British intelligence forces intercepted that telegram and then gave it to U.S. forces. It's one of the reasons that we entered into the war. You better believe that if you got that document on your desk, you would not read it. You would not skip around. You wouldn't read it episodically. You wouldn't ask, I wonder what this is going to teach me about myself. Because the document begs for you to read it differently. This is an attack. You are under attack. Read these words. This is what the enemy is going to do to you. Pay attention. This is one of the ways that we read scripture. This is the enemy's game plan against you. Now, that's a lot more interesting it's also the beloved's love letter to you. The God of the universe knows you by name and he's written to you thousands of pages about what he thinks about you. That's phenomenally interesting. Furthermore, we were all born destined for an eternity in hell apart from God. In these pages is the gift of salvation by which we can move from enemies of God to children of God. And as we approach the text, we want to ask the question, God, Show me your glory. Teach me of you. Show me what it means to follow you closer. In the book of John, as the story continues, if you have your Bibles, John chapter one, here's the, here, I, I'm, we're gonna skip around a little bit today, but I want you to kind of engage with me because it's gonna be a little bit, um, it's gonna be a little bit heavier of a message tonight, Okay. But I want you to go with me on it, and I want, you, I want to have this conversation with you. It's something that I'm deeply passionate about, if you can't tell. I want to, I want to, I want to give you guys a little bit of a statistic right now. Uh, there's a guy named Kinnaman, and he wrote this book called You Lost Me. And in it, he, he does the statistics about people who follow Jesus, who are Christians. Like I said, a term that you can use for whatever you want. Okay? I really, I, I really think when we ask someone, are you a Christian? The much more important question is, do you believe that the Bible is the final authority on faith and morality in the world? Do you believe that everything that it says is true? Do you believe that this is, is the final authority in the life of man? That's, 
right? That's like when you go, well, he's a really nice guy, but you, but when you say this phrase, this is so much different. When your standard of, of dating a guy is he's a really nice guy deep down, anyone passes, right? Because the question is how deep down are they a nice guy? But if you ask the question, are they, re- are they a respectable man that the respectable men in your life, they would pass a test for them being your partner in life? That's, a, that's like a real different question, right? Are they a man of high respect and reputation that the men in your life that you respect the most would look at them, shake their hand and say, I honor you and I respect you. <laughs> a lot less people make it through them doors, friend. In the same way, as we approach this, there's a statistic that says 75, that's three out of four. Three out of the four of you sitting here, if you group yourselves quickly, don't even, don't even do it, just mentally, think about you and then three other people around you. The statistics would show that if you're sitting at this camp and all you do is believe in God, you would consider yourself a Christian, 75% of people, young adults in America, who call themselves Christians will walk away from their faith when they get into college. 75%. And I'm going to guess if I did a straw poll and I said, how many of you think you're the one that's going to fall away? Almost none of you would raise your hand. If I said three out of the four of you are currently underneath the judgment of walking away from your faith, you're going to be one of the three of the four. And I said, how many of you are really convinced you're one of the three of the four that are going to be deceived and reject Jesus? Very few hands in this room would go up. We would go, not me. Three out of four must be these other fools around me. I'm the 25%, baby. I'm not going to get hoodwinked. I'm not going to get fooled. What's the difference then? If we're all thinking the same thing, not going to be me, must be them. And guess what they're thinking about you? Not going to be me, must be this guy. And you're both internally doing the whole thumb point at each other going, got to be this guy. And he's going, got to be that guy. One of you is right. One of you is wrong. Or maybe you're both right or you're both wrong. What's the difference? The difference is in this. When pain, brokenness, idolatry, relationships, lusts, and temptations enter into your life, you will either be equipped for the storm that's coming for you, or you won't. When we bleed as people, the deepest convictions we have in our heart spill out. When we're hurt, the deepest convictions of our soul spills out. Not now. It just doesn't matter. You're on a mountaintop. You're surrounded by mostly Christians. You're at Hume Lake Christian Camp. Your convictions in this moment are important. Absolutely. But this is not the testing ground of your faith for most of us. Jesus makes a lot of promises in scripture. The promises don't sound like this. In this world, you're going to have it easy. Never in scripture. Don't worry, everyone. I want to protect you. No pain will befall you. If you're a Christian, Jesus promises, your life's going to be easier than the non-Christians around you. These are all false. And the promises of Jesus sound like, this world is going to hate you. In this world, you will have trouble. I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves. And you are going to be beaten, bruised, you're going to be struck down. You're going to be stretched on every side, crushed, pressed down but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down and not destroyed. This is the fate of every last one of us in here as Christians. And not only do we have that to look forward to because of the brokenness of this world, you also have a target on your back if you're following Jesus because the enemy of God wants you to do nothing, to have nothing to do with Jesus. 
the war is coming for you. And whether or not you follow Jesus isn't how high you raise your hands in worship or how low you bow your knee in prayer. We can all falsify in moments of of feelings and emotion. We can manipulate those things inside of us. It comes down to this. When the crap hits the fan in your life, when the very veins and, and the truth that runs through your veins spills out, what is it? You guys, uh, I'll ask you this question. Uh, what's your name? Landon. Landon. How old are you, Landon? 19. 19. Are you a counselor? Super senior? Counselor. counselor my man. Okay. Um, Landon, if you ever get, get caught on fire, what should you do? Stop, drop, and roll. Landon, when's the last time, well, when did you first learn that you should stop, drop, and roll when you get caught on fire? Huh? When did you learn that that's what you're supposed to do? Who taught you that? When? Young age? Seven? Earlier? Maybe? Somewhere around there? Let's call it seven. And you're 19? How often do you go back over the curriculum of stop, drop, and roll? So you do. Do you, I mean, how often do you go, hold on, if I catch on fire, have you done that since? <laughs> okay. So in my, I'm 33 years old, right? And I learned stop, drop, and roll at Tulsa Lutheran School in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when I was six years old. And I don't have a yearly, like, alarm on my phone that goes, time to re-go over the curriculum, where I'm like, okay, here we go. If I'm on fire, what do I do now? Call a friend. No, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. Stop drop, and roll. Okay. All right. I'm good for the year. You don't go back over it. Why? Because the reason that stop, drop, and roll exists is because we understand something fundamentally as human beings. When you're in crisis, you don't have time to think. When you're in crisis, you react. And and the, the, the deepest understanding and the most basic foundational convictions of what you know and what you understand when you're on fire comes out. You ever notice like stop, drop, and roll isn't like Step one, examine your surroundings. Are you going to roll over on a child? Make sure you don't. (laughs) If you see gasoline around, do not pour it on yourself. That's step two. (laughs) Step three, if you're near a fireworks booth, walk the other direction. Or else, is it going to be pretty? For sure. But it will end in your demise. We don't have them. Are those all, is that all good advice? Yeah, right? No one would be like, I don't know about the kid one. I mean, you know. Sometimes, no, we're all like, that's good advice. (laughs) It's good advice. But the problem is, if it's complicated, when you're on fire, you're not going to think about it. You're going to go, step one, it rhymed with something, I don't know. Stop, drop, and roll. We remember that. What preserves you in faith versus those of you who will walk away? When your soul is on fire, you will either return to the theology of what you understand from the scriptures. You will return to the God of the universe who has told you, oh man, what is good and what does he require of you? Who has explained to you who you are, his goodness, his greatness, his grace, his love, his forgiveness. You will either return to the truths of scripture or you will, what most people do in life, you will lower your theology to match your pain and you will serve a new God of your own creation. Or you'll simply say, you know, I don't believe in a God that would let bad things happen to me. I don't believe in a God who would let bad things happen to good people. I refuse to believe in a God who would send people to hell. I will not, cannot, should not, will. 
could never, will. This is, we start making these convictions. And they're not based in scripture, they're based in our heart. And the reason they're based in our heart is because at the most core foundational level, when we bleed, what we believe deepest comes out. And if you're the God of your own life, when you bleed, when you get cut, when you get pressed, when you get squeezed in life, you will resort to one truth. What do I think about this? If you are steeped in the truths of the Christian scriptures, that so many of us find disinteresting, but you find them disinteresting because you're sitting behind the comfortable coffee cups of modern America teenage dream. If you're not prepped for that though, when the day comes, it's too late. If you wait for the day where you are pressed on all sides, you don't turn to the cross. Do you wanna know why the first Corinthians says, because the cross of Christ and the truth of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. There's a stop, drop, and roll aspect to following Jesus, to reading this text. That's not about self-help. It's not about being a better person. There's nowhere in scripture where God came and died so that you would swear less or there'd be behavior modification. God came to die to own us, that we are his children, able to call him, Romans 8, 15, father, that we are a child of God, new from the inside out, 1 Corinthians 6, that the old us has gone, the new us has arrived. There's a transition, there's a transformation of soul taking place. And if you find yourself among the many and the common and the wide gate that says, I'll read this, I'll take this seriously when I get older, when it's time, when my journey of fun is complete, listen as someone who works with students all the time, if you think to yourself, I might be an enemy of God and one day I'm gonna take this thing seriously, but until then, I'm gonna live however I wanna live. Let me make you a guarantee. You will not turn back to the cross of Jesus. Why? James tells us. If you continue in your sin to run away from God, there is a point at which it says we fall into the snare of sin and then the gospel of Christ becomes dumb to us. We don't want anything to do with it. This is a call for the future preservation of your soul that when the trial hits, when suffering hits, and when grief hits, the question's gonna arise in your heart. The biggest one you can answer, is all this Christianity stuff garbage for you? Is it all just better than having no religious belief system? Is it all a platitude of your heart where you just go, neat, I should probably believe in some kind of God. Let's take the Christian God because he wears dresses and plays harps and he's groovy and hangs out and churches dig a lot of wells for poor people in Africa. So I'm gonna, if you push me on it, I'm gonna be a Christian. Or is your walk with Christ foundational? Are the words of the text foundational? Do you want to know why that's important? Jesus is tempted in the desert. He goes out in the desert for 40 days. He doesn't eat. He's starving to death. Satan comes out in the desert and tempts him, and he tempts him three different times. He says, first of all, physical temptation. Jesus, make some bread. Turn these stones into bread, and you can eat. He appeals to the lusts of Jesus' flesh if he had them. You're a man, right? You're hungry, then make yourself some food. He then says, throw yourself off the top of the temple. You know how we know how powerful gods are in their culture? How many angels come to rescue them? How many people come and preserve them? They'll know how powerful you are. So you throw yourself off this temple and legions of angels will come and catch you. And then everyone will go, whoa, this Jesus guy must really be the one. 
And then he tempts him and he says this, what if you could have your glory without the cross? What if you just bowed down to me, Satan says, I'll give you everything as far as the eye can see. I currently own it all and I will give it all to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Didn't you come to become the king, to reinstate your throne, to buy your people back? What if I just gave it to you right now just by you bowing to me? If anyone in the history of the universe was able to respond to those things by going, I don't know, not a very good idea, it would be Jesus. If anyone ever could respond by going, let's think this one through, Satan, it would be Jesus. Do you know what Jesus says? He responds the same way three times. It is, help me out, written. You see, when Jesus is pressed, when he's tempted, when he's tried, when he's in his place of being squeezed and crushed, what does he do? The deepest core of who he was, the spirit, John chapter two, is there without limits in his soul. And you know what comes out of Jesus in the middle of his brokenness and his despair and his hunger and his strife and his grief? It is written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written. Man cannot live on bread alone. It is written that the glory of God will come through his suffering, not by me bowing down to you away from me. He quotes the text. Do you want to know why? If it's important for Jesus, it's got to be sufficient for us. On March 24th of last year, my fifth child was born. Her name is Finley. Finley, uh, my wife's maiden name was Finley, and we always want to name a kid Finley, and finally we're on baby number five, and my wife gave birth in the corner of our bedroom in 59 minutes, okay? So we live out in Bonzel, and she's like, I feel uh, contractions. I'm like, okay, great, you know, we've got a couple hours, whatever it is. Uh, nope, 59 minutes later, we're holding Finley in the corner of our bedroom, right? Like, this is like super, <laughs> you ever heard of like superheroes before, like real life superheroes? Uh, Paige Hilkin, real life superhero, right? Like fifth baby, started a few different businesses, entrepreneurial mindset, homeschool all the kids, uh, gave birth in the corner of her bedroom, like had seven kids, or had, sorry, had five kids in seven years. It's just like, I just walk around and I'm like, how are you? Why did you marry me? Okay, whatever. <laughs> I'm glad you did, but I really outpunted my coverage on this one. Like, you shouldn't be with me. But you already said yes, and the Bible says you can't say no now. You're trapped. <laughs> yes, sis. Okay, here we go. Uh, after that, she started complaining of back pains. And it was, it was, she was pretty severe, where she was having a hard time, like, laying down and stuff like that. And so I called the doctor and the doctor said, well, it's, it could either be a muscle strain because she pushed a baby out in 59 minutes in the corner of your bedroom or, and he said, and, and this is probably isn't the case, but um, there's a one to 2% chance that it's a pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lungs. 25% of all people with pulmonary embolisms, the first time they figure out they have them is they die suddenly. They just stop breathing because the blood clot passes from their lungs and it enters their heart and it kills them instantly. This was pretty concerning, obviously. Like you're sitting there, like it felt like our life was complete, right? We got the fifth kid. We talked about maybe adopting in the future, but we didn't know for sure. And, but, but it was our life. We live out on this, uh, uh, this farm in Bonzo, California. We got kids, we had goats, we got dogs, we've got chickens, we got everything. It was like the life. It's like the one that we always wanted to have. 
And the doctor just kind of comes in casually and is like, uh, actually, ma'am, you do have a pulmonary embolism. But we're going to start you on blood thinners and you're going to be okay. Like every, it, it happens quite often normally to people who are a little bit older, but it's very common in and after pregnancy for this to happen. And we caught it. So we, we think you're going to be just fine. And so we're in the hospital and uh, we go home and, and the next night we're in bed and, and it's like midnight and Paige wakes me up and she says, Chris, I'm dying. And I'm like, what are you, like, you know? First of all, my facetious brain goes like, how would you know that you're dying? Like, this hasn't happened before. So like, what do you mean you're dying? You don't, you don't know what that sensation feels like. So I don't even, and she like looks at me and she's like, I, I think we should wake up the kids and I, I'd like to say goodbye to them. And it's like, right? This is like your, your wife of like 10 years and you're sitting there going like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let me call an ambulance. Let me do something else. Like, I don't think you're dying. She's like, I can feel it in my heart. It passed. I gotta say goodnight. I gotta say goodbye to the kids. And so she starts saying goodbye to me, and she like wants to wake up the kids. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So I, I, I call the doctor, and the doctor says, it's, it's common for someone who has a pulmonary embolism for part of their heart not to receive enough oxygenated blood. So you can get what's called a cardiac infarcture, which means part of your heart beats with an arrhythmia, and it can feel uh, like something severe is happening, even though it's not. So the next day, we go to the emergency room. When I say next day, I mean three, four hours later. We're calling friends. They're coming over. They're like, you guys stay here. We're going to the ER. They do a, a couple different scans, EEG, EKG. They find out that it's exactly what they expected, um, that it's a, it was a cardiac infarcture, and so it was just a feeling of fluttering in her heart, but there was real, really no danger there. So we go back to bed the next night, and Paige wakes me up at like 2 in the morning, and she says, I just can't sleep. And I said, why not? She's like, I, I feel like if I fall asleep, I'm going to die. Like, I don't ever want to feel that feeling again. So it's two in the morning, we've got a newborn baby, so we're not sleeping anyway. We've got four other kids who aren't exactly in symphony with our sleep schedule. I'm tired, I'm hurt, I know that she's way out of it and she's given birth, we've been in the ER now and I don't really know what to do and she wakes me up and she's like, I just can't sleep. And she didn't sleep for 10 days straight. Now, listen, I didn't say she didn't sleep a lot in 10 days. She didn't sleep for 10 days. This creates in the brain deep, deep, unyielding trauma. Your brain is neuroplastic, which means when it's consistently introduced to the same stimuli, it can actually rewire itself. And the parts of your brain that are meant for certain things can be fundamentally changed. It creates psychosis. It can, it can create schizophrenia. And this is what happened with my wife. She got diagnosed with these things. She stopped talking rationally. Her brain needed a reset, but she couldn't sleep. She was so afraid of it. And on day seven, she started talking about having suicidal ideation, that she thought that she just needs to kill herself, that there's some voice in her head telling her that she has to do this. And as a pastor, you sit there and you know, you know who God is. You know what his word says. But everything in your heart and everything in your soul it's just like, what the frick? I get mad at God, confused. I remember thinking to myself, like, is this your big, like, is this your big master plan? 
I go up to Hume Lake, I teach, I go do these things, I'm a pastor, I go and I, I speak about things and, and you're not exactly thrilled with the state of mental health in the church and the way that we talk about it. So you've decided, oh, this is brilliant. You decided you were gonna hit my family with mental health issues. I gotta watch my wife descend into psychosis and schizophrenia and forget who she is. I become a single dad of five kids because she can't even take care of them. And now I'm instructed by the doctor to protect my kids from my wife. And this is, this is your big master plan because now we're going to get out of this. Now I'm going to travel around and go, hey, you know, Jesus and mental health, here's the real scoop. Here's the real issue. Because if this is your big plan, that you wound pastors before you use them, and I'm going to be part of your system, I just don't want to be. Like, I just don't want to be part of your plan. It's not funny. It's not cute. I'm not entertained. I'm not excited for my new testimony. I want nothing to do with what you want. Give me my wife back. Instead of getting better, she got worse. Went to a trauma center where they measured the trauma line of her brain to figure out what was going on. And they realized that she had deep, deep trauma from not sleeping, from different fears and different concerns that she had had because of her pregnancy, because of everything that happened, the pulmonary embolism. Our trauma line for most of us reads at about a two or a three. Someone who comes home from war in Afghanistan or Iraq registers about a 31. On this day, she registered a 64, which meant that my wife lived in constant fight or flight, like someone was out to get her, which is why she didn't make sense. That's why you watch, sit firsthand, front row, at someone's descent into deep mental illness. And I'm not, this isn't, like, Paige isn't someone who growing up, like she, she, she didn't struggle with anxiety. She didn't struggle with depression. She didn't even understand it. She led so many small groups of girls who were struggling with this, like a lot of you guys are and a lot of you girls are right now. And she just didn't get it. She's like, I just don't understand it until it hit her in the hardest way possible. And she stopped thinking like herself, talking like herself, acting like herself, being herself. I remember thinking, like, like, what do I do? And her doctor said, go do something normal. Get away from trauma. Keep your wife away from trauma. She's got to heal. If she want any, if you want therapy to work, you have to reset her trauma line. You have to take her away from trauma. Keep her away from trauma. And so we went up to our favorite place on planet Earth. One year ago today, we drove up to Hume Lake Christian Camps. And I'm teaching here, talking on the subject of suffering and the sovereignty of God, when a member of Hume Lake staff starts waving me off the stage. And I see them, and I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm trying to help them understand, and I see Monica, and she's, come here, come here, come here. And I go off stage, and I hear on the radio, get Chris Hilkins to the infirmary right away. And as we're going, I'm like, Monica, what's going on? She doesn't even know. She's like, Chris, I don't know. I'm so sorry. She put me in a golf cart. I'm like, I'm running. Like, I'm running directly to the infirmary. I don't care about any of your rules. I, well, what in the world is going on? And when I get there, my son, Leonidas, is lifeless. Turns out, in our bedroom, he just fell over. He stopped communicating. He stopped walking. He stopped responding to anything. And my wife's sleeping pills were all gone. And so we get there, and the, the firefighter that was working on Leo comes up to me, and he says, Chris, I need to tell you something. We think that he took your wife's pills, and if this is what happened, there's just nothing we can do. 
we can't life flight right now. It's the middle of the night. We can't, we can take him down the mountain. It's going to be a two and a half hour drive down into Fresno, down into the nearest hospital. And so there's nothing that we can do. He said, I want you to get in your van. I want you to follow us. And we're going to go as fast as we possibly can. If you see our lights stop and then you see us get out of the van, get out of the ambulance, it's because your son has become completely unresponsive and he's gone blue and we're going to try to resuscitate him. But Chris, there's just nothing we can do. My wife is holding my lifeless son, unresponsive. And I remember looking at her eyes and thinking what the doctors instructed me, keep her away from trauma. And I'm sitting there and I'm driving my van behind this ambulance just thinking, what? What are you doing? Like, what are you doing to me? I was just screaming. I'm in my car. I'm just yelling. Leave me alone. Just leave us alone, you know? Use someone else. I just don't want any part of this anymore. We get down the mountain. It turns out that my son Brady flushed all my wife's pills down the toilet at the same moment. My son Leonidas got acute onset cerebralitis. It's an extremely rare response to a bacterial infection where you just go lifeless. It is so rare that we had to go through like three different hospitals to have someone tell us what happened to him because no one knew. We were coming, we're sitting in the hospital and we're starting to plan what's life like with a quadriplegic brain dead son. And those words, keep your wife away from trauma, keep your wife away from trauma. I just couldn't do it. And just seemed gratuitous at some point. I don't even tell this part of the story most of the time because it just, it seems like a lie. My son Brady's eyes started going cross. He got diagnosed with the, with the condition with his eyes, but they thought that he had a, a, a tumor in his brain. They had to do an emergency MRI on him. They didn't figure that out. My daughter Finley, the newborn, had to have an, a, a, in, in middle of the night, got rushed in an ambulance to the hospital because she had an asthma attack and stopped breathing. A year ago today, this is what I was doing. And so I remember thinking to myself, like, it's a, it doesn't matter what it costs. I'm going to find the best place in the world to take care of my wife. I just got to get her back, you know? Like, it's my beloved. It's my wife. It's my best friend. It's the mother to my kids. Like, I don't care what it costs. Just give me my wife back. I remember going into church, and um, I was asking we have a counseling team at North Coast, and I said, like, where should I take her? And, and they were recommending all these places under our insurance. I said, bro, I don't, like, I don't care. I don't, I don't want to know what's in our insurance. Just, like, what's the best one you've ever heard of? And they directed me there. Tucson, Arizona at the time was this top-rated trauma center. And, and he's like, it's going to cost you $40,000 for a month. You have any clue how small $40,000 sounds? when you get your wife back? I like, I don't care. If I'm like naked with one kidney on the side of the road with five kids and a wife and we're okay, it's like, that's like the smallest price you could ever ask me to pay. I just don't care. We flew the next day as a, uh, someone in my dad's church as a gift flew us out to Tucson so we'd get her help as soon as possible. And I remember dropping her off and thinking to myself like, God is so good because he's made a way in the midst of all this stuff for healing to come. And I feel, you know, when you sleep in a room for four or five months, protecting your kids from their mom, protecting your wife from herself, 
playing doctor and taking her from appointment to appointment to appointment to appointment. She didn't hide it. People knew about this. They knew about her mental illness. They knew about all these things. And I remember dropping her off and thinking, like, there's still grace in this because we're still here now. And in 30 days, I finally get my wife back. And on July 31st of last year, she killed herself in the mental health hospital. It's like, what do you do? It's like a lot, you know? There's a lot in here about the goodness of God, the faithfulness, the gentleness of a father, the love of a dad, the protection of the almighty king. And in that moment, you know what hurt me more than anything? It wasn't my unfamiliarity with the scripture. It was my deep familiarity with the scriptures. And an absent God who didn't do anything, a great physician who didn't heal. And you get a phone call. Mr. Hilkin, this morning your wife made an attempt on her life and she was successful. It's like, I, I, I technically know what you said, but did you just tell me my wife's dead? Did you just tell me my best friend's gone? Like, did you say I'm a single dad of five kids? And I was the worst parent. She was the better one. Like, I got to call her dad and explain to him that I failed when he handed her off to me on the wedding day that I didn't do my job. Like, I got to call her mom. I got to call my dad. I got to call my family. Like, not to mention, I got five kids downstairs who are sitting there thinking that daddy's upstairs talking to mommy on his daily call from the hospital. You know what? I mean, like, if you know how to explain to a seven-year-old that their mom killed themselves, but don't worry, they still love you a lot, like, you can help me. You can go to seminary, you can get a Bible degree, but try that one on. Explain to your seven-year-old that God is good and their mom is dead because she killed herself. And it's not because she doesn't want to be with them. It's because mental illness, you're like, it's just, it just seems like. I remember sitting in my room, my, my son's room, I was in Peyton's room when I took the phone call. And like the question that kept popping up was in John chapter six, which is the, the, the text that we're studying this week, this moment where Peter is one of the closest followers of Jesus. Jesus gives him hard truth. He doesn't do what Peter wants him to do. Jesus goes a direction he didn't see that he was going. And Jesus looks at him point blank and he says, are you gonna abandon me too? And Peter's response is, to whom would I go? You alone hold the keys to eternal life. I remember thinking that. I remember being so mad at God. But I remember thinking, is like, is Christianity just the cool thing that I do on the weekends that I get paid to do to afford the luxuries of life? Is this just what I do because I like to talk and I can memorize stuff really easily? Is this like a job? Is this just BS? Is this just something that I claim to have because all the other world religions to me don't seem that they can hold the candle to Christianity? Or is this actually who I am? What do I do now? When your world falls apart and all you have is Jesus, do you have enough? 
And it's, it's not when you're on vacation that you ponder these things. It'll be in the deepest brokenness of your life. When the war comes for you, when hell comes to your doorstep and you don't know which way's up, the question permeates everything. Do you believe? This is the stop, drop, and roll moment. You're, the inside of you comes out, and what is it? No matter how much I've studied or how much I knew, in that moment I still wanted to say, forget you. Have you been there before with God? In the wake of this experience, I just had to kind of surrender and say, God, I've got nothing else. Like, I don't have anything left. I'm scared. I'm unsure. I feel like a man of little faith. And the way that I define your goodness can't be true. Because the way that I define your goodness is you would protect me from things like this. You're, you, but I, I set up your goodness, that your goodness is only good if it's good the way that I say that it's good. But that's not really who God is. And so you're sitting this moment and going, what do you do when God isn't who you thought he was going to be? And either the innermost core of who you are is going to bleed the text that the pain and the brokenness of this life, when it hits you, it's either going to spill out looking like this, the truth of God, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, or you will sit in that moment and you will simply go, if you're not gonna be the God that I've made you out to be, I want nothing to do with you. Her one-year anniversary comes up in like, I don't even know what day it is, 17 days. Everything sucks. Like being here stings like a hot knife, you know? It hurts. But I've never been more deeply convicted of the love that God has for me. I've never known a father so present, so comforting. I've never known the truth of the Bible like I do now. And I'm not standing up here as like, be like me. Do not be like me. I'm an idiot. I'm a dumpster fire. This isn't a story of a man with great faith. It's a man with faith so small, but I've put it in the right place. You see, if you have all the conviction and all the faith in the world that you can cross the Grand Canyon on a ruler stick that's this thick, it won't hold you. It doesn't matter how much you are convicted, it will work. Conversely, if the sturdiest, most structurally sound bridge that anyone's ever built spans the Grand Canyon, and you are so terrified that one foot in front of the other, you cross that bridge blindfolded, unsure of if it's going to hold you next, which one survives? Small faith in a great God or great faith in something insignificant? My story is a man of trembling, scared faith put in the right place. Why? Because when I bled, it bled this. And why am I telling you this? Because it's coming for you. You want to know what makes three out of four? It's not now. It's when that day hits you. And I hope you never go through that. I hope you never watch the one you love descend into mental illness. I hope you never have someone that you love commit suicide. I hope you never have to be left alone with five kids to raise. I hope you never have any of that stuff. 
but I love you too much to let you go through life thinking that you're going to have this happy-go-lucky, skippy, everything's going to be fine, and that's the testing of your faith. It's not. It's real. It's raw. And Jesus is the God of the real and the raw. No matter how much we paint him to be the God of the mountaintop, he's the God of the valley. He's the God of the brokenness of our world, of your hurt and your pain and your insecurities and your doubts and your fears. He's the God of that. And I want you to know him, and I want you to know him through this, not through the, 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 the filter of your heart or what you actually think, because what you find when you open these pages is, is a God who doesn't always agree with you, who what you think about him doesn't make a difference if it's not who he actually is, who in some ways is going to let you down, but it's not because he's not good, it's because we don't know good. We wouldn't know good if it punched us in the face. But the question comes down to us in a very simple phrase. Do you trust God enough to do what he says? That's the entirety of the Christian faith. Don't make it more complicated than that. Satan would love it to be more complicated. Faith is trusting that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. I want you to be bulletproof. I don't want 75% of you to walk away from Jesus. He's the only hope for this world, friend. I'll tell you what, walking through this whole situation with God is confusing, it's hurtful, it's, but I'll tell you what, if I didn't have Jesus, I would have nothing. This life is hard with Jesus, and without him, it's impossible. I want you to know him. I don't want you to know him through platitudes and what your friend told you one time. I want you to know him in his true character the platitudes, the kitsch phrases, the popular coffee mug verses, they're all fantastic when you're sitting behind your coffee cup looking out at the lake and hoping for inspiration. They are not going to do anything on the day where everything collapses. The true character of God revealed in his living word is what's going to matter on that day. That is why this is so important. It's not because pastors say you're going to do it or because we want to find out what God has to say about me today. It's not that. In this world, you will have trouble. And what's going to be your response to it? That's the difference between the one and four and the three and four. It's this. And I want to spend forever and eternity with you, with Jesus. And the war is coming for you. And I want the stop, drop, and roll in your, of your heart to be the love, consistency, and character of God. I want that to spill out of you when you get cut open because it is the only story that saves, and it is the only truth that means anything. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry for the places in my life where I've tried to fit you and conform you into a box that I think that you should be, where I process my life through my own filter, as if what I think is good is good and what I know is bad is bad. For the parts of my heart that I haven't surrendered to you, for the times that I've put you on trial because this broken, fragile, misguided, confused man called Chris Hilkin constantly weighs your goodness based on my understanding of goodness. God, I, I'm calling for myself. God, would you just bring me in a deeper submission to you? God, I love you, and I don't get why you love me, and I, and I don't get why your promises are true for us, and I don't get why you died on the cross for our sins, but I do know this, that you are the God of the valleys. You are the God of the broken, of the messed up, of the confusing, and of our doubts. You are not a God who says, get right, get good, get mentally healthy, and then let's have a conversation that you sit next to us in our suffering, in our pain, in our brokenness. 
with an arm wrapped around us, as Romans 8 says, as a father comforting their son, comforting their daughter, you look at the brokenness of the world around us and you simply redirect our face to you and say, will you look to me right now or will you look to that? Will you find my character? Will you search my scripture? Or will you lower your theology of me to match your pain? Would you give us the bravery of heart tonight, even as we sit here, to ask ourselves that hard question? What would I do with God if he took away the thing in my life that I find my identity in? What would I do? Would God still be good if what I value most was gone? Or is his goodness dependent on the niceties and the materialistic possessions and the future successes of my life? Why is God good? Is he good because the text says so? Or is he good because right now my heart feels like that's the case? Would you tune our hearts to sing of your praise and your praise alone? Let me pray. Amen.